Hi, this is Raquel O'Brien. Welcome back to Unfiltered, a production from Casefile Presents, where we invite people from all walks of life to share real stories about justice and transformation. What price do whistleblowers really pay for uncovering the truth? Former US soldier Justin Watt has first-hand experience. In 2006, during the height of the Iraq War, a local family was killed in their home south of Baghdad. While the crimes were initially thought to be carried out by local insurgents, the reality was even more shocking. When Justin Watt discovered who was really responsible, he risked everything to reveal the truth. 17 years on, Justin and the man he credits with saving his life, John Deem, join me to reflect on trust, empathy, and the consequences of speaking out. On March 12, 2006, four members of the Janabi family, Kasim, his wife Fakria, and their daughters Hadil and Abia, were murdered in their home in the Iraqi village of Yusufia, south of Baghdad, a region that occupying US soldiers referred to as the Triangle of Death. Abia had also been raped and her remains set alight. This is how it's going to be all year, you know, welcome to the Triangle of Death. Private First Class Justin Watt was stationed in Iraq at the time. My platoon, first platoon, was out on checkpoint duty during that rotation. Morning, like any other, you would wake up before the sun rose. You would start getting prepared to do the IED sweeps, which was like one of the most dangerous parts of the day. So like at dawn, you would get up and walk one checkpoint to the next and and sweep that area for bombs. Easily my least favorite part of the day. So I was getting ready to go do that. So right at six, you've got old man and a young boy show up checkpoint and they want to talk to the lieutenant. I went down there, went to talk to him. I grabbed the interpreter and uh, found out what was going on. And they're like, our whole family got killed. Everyone's dead. The house is on fire. Uh, We need the police and, and medical services to be able to get through. The one thing that stood out it wasn't the, the women or the kids or the family that had been murdered for seemingly no reason. It was the isolation of the young female, a beer, the fact that her body was burned. And then the rest was segregated into another room where their bodies were. So that was March. That was like March 13th. I want to say June or July is when I found out what really happened. A few months after the Janabi family murders, Sergeant Tony Uribe confided in Justin that one of their fellow soldiers was responsible for the brutal crime. Uribe's like, yeah, that was, like, this is crazy. Like, this is messed up. Justin put his career and his life at risk by conducting his own investigation into the matter. He discovered five of his fellow soldiers were involved to varying degrees. Sergeant Paul Cortez, Specialist James Barker, Private First Class Jesse Spielman, Private First Class Brian Howard, and Private First Class Stephen Green were found to have planned, carried out, and covered up the rape and murder of Abia, as well as the massacre of her family. I knew I was on a clock because Howard knew that I was asking around. And then Uribe also knew that 
I mean, like I was explicit with him that I wanted to turn these guys in and that I believed that there were more people involved and everything else like that. And I was like, okay, when we get back down on the ground together, all these people are going to find out everything. And so I need like an insurance policy. So I went to like one of the only guys I trusted at that point. His name's John Deem, just E5 sergeant, got promoted for me for just a few months ago, young guy, as good as the day is long, man. One of the smartest people I've ever met. Justin credits Sergeant John Deem for saving his life after he chose to blow the whistle. I went to him and I was like, listen, Sergeant, like I can't tell you what this is about, but if something happens to me, you need to get to Staff Sergeant Davis. I mean, you need to get this ball across the finish line. If something happens to me, it's not by accident. I need you to know that. And he's just like, no, you got to tell me what's going on. And he, we had a really good relationship. I mean, it's like when we were on guard together, I just call him John, you know, not Sergeant. You know, like we were friends, but like he pulled rank on me that one time. And he's like, you've got to tell me, you know, what happened. And so, you know, I told him what I've done. And he was like, Roger that. So I was working it from the outside. He made the decision on his own, which I got, <laughs> I didn't know about this until years later, but it almost got me killed, but he actually ended up saving me. <laughs> so kind of a funny deal, but he went and just reported it right up the chain of command, right? Like right to the lieutenant. And then exactly what I was worried about happening happened. Basically, it went out over the radio. Everyone found out that uh, someone had said something and everyone was frantically running around. Like if they weren't aware of it, they were trying to figure out what was going on and the criminals were trying to figure out who had talked. And so at that point, like I was like sweating bullets and, uh, you know, I got approached by Tony. It's like, did you say something? I was like, no, nah, must've been Howard. No idea what you're talking about, man. And, uh, I was like, I'm, I'm going to get killed out here. Colonel rolls down first. The captain rolls down, actually, excuse me. He starts asking questions, gets the Colonel down there. Colonel comes down and he did exactly what I thought he was going to do. He basically conducts his own informal inquiry basically lets everyone know that someone is making these accusations and they all deny it predictably. And then he goes down and he, and he outs me in front of Uribe at checkpoint four where I was at. Basically they're like, where's Watt at? They brought me into a room of this bombed out building. Uribe standing in the doorway behind me. And they're like, what gives you the right to accuse these men of these crimes? You know, you're going to ruin these non-commissioned officers' careers. You don't have any evidence. What gives you the right? And I told him, I just, I just like looked behind me and I looked at Tony and I just like looked back at them and I, and I was just like, I was like, you're wrong, sir. That guy covered up a rape and uh, multiple murders. Howard confessed that he was the lookout to me. I've got all these names in my logbook. I know that they that they did this, and uh, I'm going to fill out a, a, an official statement to that effect. They just berated me for a while longer, and then they tried to leave me at that checkpoint. I know that they never even tried to get me out of there because they didn't have room. So they were leaving that checkpoint. I mean, you want to talk about that? That was like the most dejected and alone and just miserable I'd ever felt in my life. Was when they're like, "You're dismissed," and I went out there, 
I got back into the Humvee and I started pulling guard and I was just like looking out at the horizon and I was like, I'm dead. And then all of a sudden I heard this voice on the radio that was like, Talon 6, Talon 6, do you have Watt with you? And that was John Deem. And he's like a sergeant talking to a lieutenant colonel. This doesn't happen. And it was like negative, Watt's at checkpoint four. It's like, you need to bring him with or they're going to kill him. Forced him to turn around. So they came and they picked me up and they had to leave one of their guys there. The five individuals who committed the crime faced charges for their involvement and received varying convictions. Green, who was responsible for carrying out the murders, was sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole. He took his life shortly after. The remaining perpetrators were sent to military prison to serve their sentences. Justin Watt's actions led to mixed opinions from the American public. Some viewed him as a hero, while others accused him of being a traitor. Justin has since been medically discharged from the army. Justin and John, each year the two of you speak together at West Point. Tell me about West Point and what it is that you speak about there. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I want to say... And, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say it was roughly like two to three years after the book came out. Um, so that's that's Black Hearts by Jim Frederick. Ultimately, uh, we had a member of CAPE, uh, a contractor at that time, reach out to... I, I remember, in fact, he reached out to me um, through Jim, the author. And, and Jim was like, hey, they're about to do this training. Um, they're putting together a program. It's, it's the Master Army Ethic and Profession Training Program. Um, and they'd like you to be a part of it. And this was right after the kill team uh, thing happened in Afghanistan. And I was, I was super frustrated um, just because I felt like immediately after, you know, I mean, obviously I got out of the army unceremoniously and I didn't feel like anybody endeavored to learn any of these lessons. And it was at that point with the kill team thing, I was like, it's kind of too little, too late, right? And um, so I said no initially. And then Jim called me back probably, I don't know, a week later. And he was like, hey, I talked to this guy, Jamie, and um, you know, he's a really good guy and this isn't going to be what you think it is. And, and at the time I hadn't seen Diem since the deployment. And, and so I made this ridiculous ask. I was like, uh, I was like, okay, well, if they fly DM out to me to do the interviews at the same time, then, uh, and then we can hang out for the weekend, then I'll do the interview. And, um, and, and it actually ended up like they, they called my bluff and they, they flew DM out and then we got to, we got to hang out. And then that, those videos got inculcated into the master army ethics and training program. And the, I think the first two classes got held at West Point. And then ultimately the instructors, you know, that, I mean, things are happening on campus. Like the, the, I think it was like the philosophy department got interested in some of the, the officers that were teaching, uh, the MX 400 course, which is like the capstone course on officership, uh, got interested in it. Um, and then it ended up becoming kind of like a, uh, like a, a content cornerstone, like an evergreen content cornerstone for, for that particular class, for all the cadets that are going through it. It got inculcated into, the Sergeant's Major Academy, I think that they've talked about it at the, at the Command Staff General War College, which is, you know, there's different checks, like leadership certifications that you, that you need to kind of check the box on as you work your way up in the military. 
and yeah, then it just, it kind of, it, for whatever reason, it stuck at West Point. And then the last week of, of MX400 is what they call the Mission Command Conference. And so, you know, all semester, the cadets are, you know, they're reading the book, they're having small group facilitated discussions about what we were going through on that tour. They get put into scenarios where they have to like talk through or write about what they would do in certain circumstances. They have discussions with their peers. And then the culminating event is they'll bring some survivors um, from our platoon out there. And, and then for roughly a week, we'll do, you know, some small group discussion with them. Uh, a lot of Q&A, a lot of facilitated discussion. Um, and that's, John and I are always on the same panel. It, it wasn't, I actually kind of got used to, to to working with him in that regard. Like it was completely by accident. They just decided to put us on the same panel. So, I mean, ultimately that's kind of how it all started. That was a little, super long-winded, but I hope that answers the question. To maybe more directly talk about the United States Military Academy at West Point, it's um, a four-year Ivy League college education funded by the taxpayer. You're selected through recommendations from senators and from the fa- and reviewed by the faculty. Uh, these are some of the best student athletes in the United States, and they are almost all of them going to go into active duty as commissioned officers. Um, it is primarily an educational institution with a very strong focus on leadership. And Justin and I primarily have been asked to talk about the consequences of becoming a whistleblower or ethical action. And we've been doing it for something like 10 years as a result of the Yusufia incident. Of course. And what's the response been like? And also, how has it been for you? Has it been transformative experience for both of you as well? Um, you know, it's a weird deal. I mean, on one hand, it's, I mean, I think anyone that, I mean, like one of the, one of the truisms about this case in particular was that I, like, I wasn't able to save that family. You know what I mean? And that's, and that's, that would have been the, the better outcome. You know what I mean? Like I found out, I found out about the crimes after, uh, after they occurred, and so at the end of this, you know, while, while it may be the desired outcome that, that some measure of justice was provided uh, to that family, it's certainly not a circumstance where like the scales really ultimately ended up getting balanced, right? And so what you try to do, I think a lot of people that go through formative experience or, or, or really difficult challenges in their life, try to find some way to make meaning or, or, or positivity out of it. And so in the sense that, you know, John and I have been asked to think seriously about those events for the last, you know, 10, 15 years, and that we've had the opportunity to kind of inject lessons learned into that institution, you know, after, after our time had concluded within it. Um, I mean, it's certainly a positive thing. I mean, I, you know, there's times where it's deeply frustrating. Um, I mean, and I think, and I think anyone that goes through what we went through, um, I mean, it's never a fun thing to talk about, you know what I mean? And like, and so like, it's not, this, this is actually, this is actually the only, um, like when case file picked it up, uh, initially that that was like the only time I ever did a, a non-military related, you know, interview about, the events that happened in Yusufia. But, you know, I think the more that John and I have thought seriously about 
those events and the messages and the lessons learned you know, that we've been sharing with the military audience, that we have found some application or utility in, in conveying those potentially to like a broader audience. I mean, not, not in like any professional aspect, but, you know, if opportunities come up, it's, you know, you're, you're always trying to maximize the value, I suppose, of, of those horrible lessons learned. And, and hopefully it, it can help balance the scales, I guess, in time. I mean, I would say the reaction we get from the people that we present it to, like, these are really smart kids and with, and their kids. I mean, they're, they're young. They haven't been commissioned yet. And I would say that one of the things that Justin and I run into is a strong belief that they would have done it better or just that what we did was the presumptive action that any soldier would take. And we find that interesting and frustrating. Um, Not the least reason why is because they've had 10 or 15 years to find another story with another Justin but Justin's the one that keeps getting the call to go up there and talk about this. There should be a good news story by now where somebody took Justin's position and made it right, but they haven't found it yet. And it's the, you know, it's one of the follies of youth that they think that this is a very cut and dry issue and that you can extract all the moral knowledge and information out of it after a first blush reading. And honestly, we still get significant lessons with considerable meaning out of this even today like we'll t- we talked about it today and i think we we come to di- we come to more advanced versions of our previous conclusions right yeah the truth and the change it evolves through time and i do believe strongly that when you're trying to bring about this positive change and also prevent it from happening in the future it's not something you can just shut off from you have to kind of continue to do the work you know it doesn't stop so congratulations to both of you i thought we could retrace in time and go back to when you two decided to join the military as kids, as you mentioned. Justin, in a previous interview, you mentioned that you thought soldiers were superheroes uh, when you were a kid. And I was wondering for both of you, when you were first deployed, did you feel like a superhero when you were stationed in Iraq at first? Um, I can tell you, it's kind of like, that's an interesting question. I think, I don't know, and we'll probably get into the whole narrative um, thing later. But I mean, I, I can tell you that what we've learned about these conflicts, the reasons for engaging in Iraq specifically, you know, we have more information today than than John and I had, you know, when we made the decision to participate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can say with absolute honesty that my intention was, you know, like I had watched 9-11, I saw these things happen. Like I saw, you know, like the, there's this famous photo. It's, it's I think they call it falling man. And it's yes. like, if you, if you sit and you look at that, you know, and you think about it for a minute, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, that's a decision it, that someone made to jump from that building because like what, what was behind them, you know, like what behind them was, was, or something behind them was more terrible than what was in front of them with that choice to fling themselves out the window. And, you know, I felt like um, I was doing the right thing. You know what I mean? I believe, and I always have believed, like I come from a family of veterans that served back to World War II, but 
I believe that society and, and history would, would prove that the fundamentally like service or the capacity for a nation to defend itself um, or, you know, have those tools that could be brought to bear are, are a fundamental necessity. You know, like the society like operates, I think under the auspices, like it has to operate where one of us is as important as all of us. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there has to be a group of people that are willing to stand for other people. And I think that, that there is intrinsic good in that. Like, I think that there's like an objective good. If you take a look at the people that are willing to do that, I, and you know, my intentions, I can tell you were good. Like I didn't go over there to hurt innocent people. You know I mean? The, the, the narrative that I was operating under at the time was that, you know, this, this organization, which I had never heard of before, which is Al Qaeda, mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is somehow interconnected with the Taliban you know, uh, our way of life is fundamentally incompatible. You know, like the people that, that live under the, or live in environments that they have influence over are, are oppressed. You know what I mean? Like there's an unbelievable amount of violence. Like, like they're, they're like dyed in the wool bad guys. And, you know, it, it's something that like we have to, we have to address in a meaningful way or, you know, like the world's gonna stop spinning. And, you know, like those were the auspices that we joined under. I, I think that, when you go to combat, you know, and, and when you're in training, you, you know, like there's, they're beating it into you. Like when you're a fighting soldier, it's like, I mean, I remember like running the O course and like the drill sergeants were yelling. It's like, there are 10 soldiers for every one of you to support you. You know, it's like, cause we're, you know, it's like, we're supposed to be the main event. It's the, it's the infantry. You're, you're the one who does the fighting um, and the killing and the dying, you know, it's the, it's the main event and they build you up in, in your head, talking about the capabilities that we have and you're, you're seeing night vision and infrared lasers and you're learning how to use radios so you can call aircraft in and, you know, you're calling an indirect fire and, you know, there's all, you're learning medical skills, you're learning all these important things. And then you go into combat for real and, you know, you see somebody step on an IED and it, it just obliterates them in the exact same way that it would obliterate any other type of biological matter. And it's so, I mean, the illusion goes away really quickly, I would say. I mean, like I said, I, I thought that what I was doing was important. I thought what I was doing was good at the time. And yeah, I mean, obviously narratives change over time, but um, I, I hope that answers your question. Also, both of us joined the army like before the internet was like a household appliance. So if you think about it like that, like what did we think about the government as opposed to the government and its institutions? Like the they all these institutions enjoyed an unbelievable amount of credibility yes. when we were young in a way that they don't now. Uh, it was unthinkable to second guess the US government's response to 9-11, really. And there were some people who did it, but they were really on the fringes of society, really. I mean, I'm come from the Midwest. Um, I was a normal middle-class kid with uh, some veterans in my family. And so then you get put into training and the training, like I remember like almost every third word out of our mouth was kill for three or four months while we were doing training. Like the, the indoctrination is real. It's not brainwashing, but what they're trying to do is put you in a different mindset where, because we knew we were going to war, um, what, and this is an army that hadn't deployed in something like 20 years, hadn't been to war. So the people that were training me had never been to war either. So they were trying to inject me with what they thought war was going to look like. 
and it ended up being just as fanciful as any civilian's dreams of what combat would look like. So then you get to combat. I went to the invasion, the the deployment before Justin, and uh, truthfully, it just wasn't as violent as the second deployment to Eusophia that I went to with Justin. So one, you're like one of the first generations in the army to deploy. Like we're not really getting involved in a bunch of gunfights over there. And then you go to the second deployment and I really consider that to be something like my first deployment. Right. Where we really learned what it was about. Like, cause there are a lot of people who call themselves veterans and I'm not taking anything away from them. Like your service was valuable to the nation and I like you should carry yourself with dignity but there's a difference between the kind of veteran who who goes through like a difficult but not necessarily casually laden deployment and one that sees a lot of people die in close proximity that is that is combat in in the most dehumanizing sense and so our exposure to that fairly early on in that deployment really solidly attacks the center mass of like all the inflated beliefs that you have about combat, about reality, about violence. So when I got there, yeah, I thought I was pretty well-trained and I I was well-trained. I just, uh, that's somewhat less relevant than we like to believe. Unfiltered will be back shortly. Thank you for supporting us by listening to this episode's sponsors. Thank you for listening to this episode's ads. By supporting our sponsors, you support Unfiltered to continue to deliver quality content. Look, I'm wondering, you talk about how your opinions change over time, your perspectives with the internet, there's more information available. Um, Noam Chomsky says the United States is the world's biggest terrorist. Do you agree with his sentiment? I think that there's a lot of people, specifically in academia, that like we all have bias. I think that in academia, when you aren't participating in things and you're studying things that other people live through or other people do or what other people write, you have bias. Uh, I think when you participate in things, you know, you have bias. I think that what I've come to understand about terrorists or villains or evil or whatever is significantly different than kind of like the naive outlooks that I had as a child. I mean, the terrorists that I fought against, I mean, it's not to say that evil doesn't exist or that you could, you know, I mean, there's like a thousand different lenses, but I mean, when you get into like the the philosophical tools to determine like what is evil or not, it's like, there's a lot of, uh, I think, lenses that you can apply to the same thing and get different different outcomes on. I think that that, you know, what I'd feel comfortable saying about this is that I don't think that anybody woke up, I don't think that people wake up in the morning or the amount of people waking up in the morning stroking hairless cats, wearing monocles, you know, plotting everyone's demise is a lot (laughs) lower than people might think. You know what I mean? And I think that people think that about evil in general, like it's like you're going to see it, it's going to be wearing black and it's going to have a scar on its face. You know what I mean? And that's just not been my, that's not been my experience with evil. It's more often than not, people, a whole bunch of people doing what what benefits them or what they think is right. Like nobody wakes up and thinks that they're the bad guy. And that's everything from terrorists that I've captured to, you know, people that I've been in gunfights with to 
leadership that I've met in the army that was responsible for fundamentally creating the conditions by which the Janabi family was murdered. You know, not to take away the agency from the criminals, um, but there are degrees of onus that all of us have to wear, you know what I mean, for the end result of the conflict writ large and then the, not to diminish it, but the smaller tactical level um, uh, incidents like the Janabi family, right? I don't know, it's just, it's just not been my experience that, I think that the U.S., like the principles that the U.S. has founded on is extremely good. I think that, you know, the U.S., just like anybody in life, like if it's your boss, if it's the CEO of the company, if it's the shareholders, if it's whatever, everyone is trying to vie for the outcome that's better for them. And I think that people don't use empathy as much as they probably should when it comes down to determining courses of action. But I, I, I think that the U.S. is far from perfect, but... We're also in a very unique situation because we also have, you know, a lot of influence in the world and we have the capacity to exert that influence where a lot of other countries don't. And we also have mechanisms and, and rights from a speech perspective that allow criticism in a way that I think isn't tolerated in other economic superpowers like China, as an example. So, I mean, it's, the answer to your question is it's complicated. I mean, I don't want to dodge the question and say that I think that the war in Iraq was a good thing. You know what I mean? Like the way yeah. that I've had to couch that in my own mind is to say my participation in that conflict was done with the best of intentions. And I spent every day of that deployment trying to serve in a capacity that would make the American people who are my client, the institution's client, proud. And I hope that people understand that there's a subordinate relationship. You know, like people that, that you elected, you know, sent us there. Yes. Our job is to fundamentally, you know, through our kind of like representative democracy, you know, and it's like our, our job is to engage in, you know, in accomplishing the goals of those people, or, uh, you know, represented by the people they elected. I know that we needed more people at that time, that was a very unpopular conflict um, after the first couple of years. So the generals were asking, hey, we need more people. And, you know, it was politically unpalatable or, you know, there weren't the people that were qualified or whatever there might be. And they didn't have the ability to say, oh, well, we, we can't do the mission that, then. You know what I mean? The, the military is not an organization that gets to say no to their client. I can tell you I operated under the best intentions at the time. And since then, I have no delusions about what I participated in. And I think that looking at the scope of the events that transpired since then with ISIS, a lot of the, the cross-border violence that's occurred as a result of ISIS, you know, into Syria, you know, I struggled to look back on it and find productive meaning on an individual level. Right. I would say. I mean, I think Noam Chomsky, for his work in linguistics, is an obvious genius, um, probably a once-in-a-generation genius. But... I would also say that that statement just isn't helpful unless you can, like if my job is to prosecute the nation's wars to the best of my ability and, and keeping with the character of the nation, what's his responsibility if he's the thought leader that's identified us as the number one terrorist? Like if I fail, it's 100% my fault. If Noam Chomsky fails to propagate that idea, if it's correct, doesn't that make him morally responsible for his failure 
I mean, if he's got a case to make, he should make it. I feel like that statement just taken on its own doesn't make a case for how we should act differently. It just basically casts aspersions on the United States. And that's not particularly helpful if we're going to change our behavior to act more in line with whatever Noam Chomsky envisions we should be doing. It's difficult as well, I think, to, you know, it's like, well, what's the all, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, and I don't think John would say, I don't think anyone would say, like, I'm completely open to criticism of America. And I I think that analyzing our failures and owning up to our mistakes is important um, now more than ever. But it's one of those circumstances where because dialogue about the United States is tolerated, like in that regard, in, in, uh, in a very open way, I think that people don't really bother to put much intellectual energy. And, and because we're, I think, more open about our flaws than a lot of other places, like I don't think that people put in a lot of energy to considering the alternatives. Like, mm. you know, would, 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 we, would we be a more ethical global society? You know what I mean? Or a more ethical, like would, would, would the world be better if China was in charge? You know what I mean? Would, what, you know, why is the UK morally superior or is Mexico morally superior to the United States? You know what I mean? Like I, it's unclear to me. I think that at the end of the day, you know, everybody behaves in their own self-interest and that extends at, to the, to the strategic or nation state level. I mean, I, I don't think anybody is out there just being like, let's, let's put the needs of my constituents second to, or, or subordinate to, you know, the needs of this third party. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. It's. I think it's a witty one-liner. I think it's somewhat intellectually dishonest. And I think, to John's point, it's unproductive. And, and it comes from somebody who has managed to avoid having skin in the game for a really long time. And that's not, you know, it, that, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to, to besmirch him or, or, or call him a coward. I'm just saying it's very, very easy to, to sit on the sidelines um, where there's when no you, consequences. When you don't have the lived experience. Yeah. I think it's, it's... There's more than enough opportunities to have skin in the game. Like, you don't have to get into a gunfight to have an opinion. But I'm just saying, like, he's sitting with tenure at a university. It would be super easy for him, if he's got a strong idea what the future's supposed to look like, to put his money where his mouth is and make it happen. It does nobody any good to sit up there and talk from the balcony at your local Ivy League to a bunch of impressionable young people. Like, if you've got an idea... Spend your blood and your sweat and go do it. Well, I think that's a good segue into what you both did. Now, I know that most people who listen to this will be familiar with the Janabi case and what happened in Yusufia. Um, Maybe we could recap a little bit, but what I really wanted to focus on was your decision to talk, Justin, and to share that with John. Yeah, I mean, I would say I would encourage people if they're interested in hearing like a elongated version of that story to to go listen to the the case file episode uh, just because it, it was pretty comprehensive and I think that we covered a lot of you know the groundwork there. But specifically, I mean, the decision to come forward and more specifically, like why did I go to John? I. And I've talked about this a couple of times, but but I think that it's difficult to describe. I mean, it was it was horrible. You know what I mean? It's like when you see all these things happening all the time, like and you and you go to that many funerals and you lose that many friends and you know, you see that much human suffering. I mean, not just on my side, but in general, you know, like when you see 
you know, elections take place and then, you know, the, the family of the, the winner of the election gets murdered as a result of the election and, you know, where you see kids with horrible illnesses that, you know, they don't have access to medical care for because they're living in abject poverty or, you know, you're seeing the victims of, of political or religious violence. You know, there was a concerted effort during that time by MSC or AQI, which is Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, which turned into MSC, which is the Mujahideen Shura Council. There was a concerted effort at that time to start a uh, secular war within Islam between Sunni and, and Shia factions. And the results of that were unbelievably violent and horrible. And you're in this environment and then you learn that that happened and it's kind of like holding up a mirror. Like it's, it's kind of like when you were talking about like, did I think I was a superhero when I joined? I certainly thought I was the good guy. You know, just like everyone that picked up a gun against me. But in that moment, you have to confront a reality that the organization at that tactical level, I, I'm not referring to the army here to be specific, but Bravo Company First Platoon had become something monstrous and somebody had to pull the brakes on the crazy train. It was a morally unreconcilable, like, like if I did nothing, then I would have been, I, it would have been inconcilable with, with who I am and who I believe that that institution is. You know what I mean? Like I believe that the institution of the army represents my values. And I know for a fact that my values don't fall in line with the actions that those men, men took. Uh, John is another person who who demonstrated that to me. Like it's, and it's in small ways that happen in really difficult moments over time that build trust. And it's like, I knew, like I saw the army in John and I saw that he had that same value system in all the little things that he did. Like I wasn't John's soldier, like he was a sergeant, I was a private. But he always like, when our fob burned down, this is a good example. It was like, I didn't belong to him at all. It was someone else's job to look out for my interests, but you know, like my sleeping gear, everything was gone, all my personal possessions. And he went out of his way to leverage his network to make sure that I had a, you know, a sleeping bag and some basic hygiene you know, equipment. Um, when our radio uh, operator for the uh, company was killed, you know, and our platoon RTO got promoted to the company and I ultimately had to take over that responsibility with no experience. I had no experience um, in that role John took it upon himself to work with me, you know, and make sure that I was going to be able to be successful in that environment. Like every little thing, every time that he had an opportunity to step up and make sure that his guys were okay, that they were doing the right thing. Like, you know, I, I knew that he was the same as, as me and, and as the army would have expected him to be. And when I told him, I told him, not so that he would do anything about it. In fact, it's, it's actually pretty funny because I didn't know, like he literally almost got me killed in this, which is which is the funny part of the story. But it ended up saving your life. Yeah, 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 he ended up saving my life. But it's like, I didn't tell him with the, uh, with the, with the goal of having him do anything. I had already reported those crimes outside of the chain of command. I had thought about it for as long as I felt comfortable holding on to it, like so I could determine a course of action and still be prompt. I developed a course of action. I took that action. And at that point, all that was left was to survive until, you know, the consequences of that action I took played out. John, it, it became apparent to me that I was on a clock because I had gone to Uribe directly twice and tried to get him to report those crimes with me. 
So he knew that I wanted to report it. And then Howard knew that I was asking questions about it. So it was only a matter of time before the criminals found out both that I, I now knew about the crimes and that I wanted to turn them in. And, and I think that the results of that, you know, or the consequences of that could have been predictable. And so as an insurance policy, I went to John and I told him everything. So if something happened to me, you know what I mean? He would be able to get the ball across the finish line and, and hopefully, you know, give me an opportunity where I could avoid uh, getting killed myself. Because I could say, hey, I'm not the only one that knows. And if something happens to me, you know what I mean? Then another person's going to do the same thing. Like there's no, it's over. I was hoping that that's in my mind how it how it played out. But then John was just like good soldier dude, and uh, got up in the guard in the guard tower and was just like semper semper army and uh, jumped off. And after thinking about it for a couple hours, and then reported it and blew blew my cover and uh, dang near got me killed. But he also saved me. Like they they abandoned me at that checkpoint with with some of the criminals and. I was watching them drive away and I was just like, I had no idea how they found out. I didn't know that it was John. I thought that this was just the result of my reporting had caused the, all this to happen. And uh, yeah, then John, I'm like watching them drive away literally. And and uh, all of a sudden you hear John on the radio that was like, you know, uh, Town Six, do you have Watt with you? And they're like, negative. He, we left him at checkpoint four. And he was like, you know, I forget the, exact phrasing that he said, but it was, it was something to the effect of like, you have to take him with you. They're going to, you know, they're going to kill him. And, um, it got corroborated later by Uribe at West Point. Like they, they were making a plan to kill me. I mean, not, not Uribe, but Cortez and Barker and the rest of, uh, the people that were still there. And, uh, yeah, John got me out of there. And so that created enough time and distance for the investigation to happen. Um, and then ultimately what, what people heard about in the news came out. So, that's how that all went down. And for for you, John, I've heard you speak about organizational trust and imminent trust or personal trust and how Justin demonstrated organizational trust. Can you elaborate on that thought? So institutional trust is more or less belief in the values and procedures that allow for the association of people within that institution. So soldiers have good reason to believe that everybody around them has been through the same things they have, believes in the same way, the same things that they do, more or less within the, at least as it applies to the institution, and will act in the same way as them in accordance with the institution's interest. Personal trust is obviously that. It is fruit born from the tree of affection that you have with another person. Um, it wilts or blooms in accordance with your, with your relationship with that person. But institutional trust can be relied upon regardless of how, like you may not like a person personally, maybe you're from different backgrounds, maybe you don't really, maybe you have different religious beliefs, different cultural beliefs, uh, come from different economic backgrounds, what have you. But institutional trust is something that is something that can get institutions through difficult times or through questionable times because it's just a, a belief that through our association or through the institution that allowed us to become associated, we can posit that we share some specific values that allows us to extend trust beyond the proof of our eyes. Justin showed institutional trust in this case 
because he believed that I would hear those facts, come to a similar conclusion that he did, and act in the same way that he did. Now, I think he underestimated exactly how closely our actions would align, but at the end of the day, I believe that he... And I mean, we, there was some personal trust there too. Like we had a personal relationship, but it wasn't like I, he wasn't my soldier. We didn't see each other every day. Certainly I had some affection for him, but ultimately like that wasn't an, I don't think outside of institutional trust, I don't, if I had failed to show that I back the values of the institution, I don't think he would have done the same thing. I think if it had just been like we were buddies, I don't, I don't think he, we were that close. Very interesting. And when as well you're dealing with such harsh realities that you were dealing with at the time, the role of discipline to make sure you are able to form a mindset that allows you to deal with a harsh and testing reality. Can you talk a little bit more about that as well? It's pretty clear to me that people who are at least trained when they encounter difficult situations know the right answer. But in persistent, difficult situations, you begin to, like, because discipline generally points you to an answer that's the right answer every time, but it's also the most difficult answer every time. So an example would be you need to shave every day because if you don't take time to wash your face every day, like you could get an infection, this and that, what are the chances you're going to get an infection? Pretty low. So let's say you don't shave one day okay, I didn't get an infection and I have 10 minutes of my day where I can sleep that 10 minutes or whatever. Discipline is the acceptance of the difficulty of the situation, the belief in the efficacy of the solutions that discipline presents to you and an understanding that you are, if you don't shave your face ever, you are going to get an infection. If you don't wash your clothes, you are going to get sick. Like, it's the understanding that these difficult things are coming down the pipe. You don't know when they're going to happen, but you need to do the right thing for its sake as often as you can bear it to mitigate these difficulties, these completely optional difficulties. And these include moral difficulties as well. Mm. You know, I like they're really easy to look at in the military, it's really easy to look at physical difficulties and, and build our models off of those. But just as important are the moral difficulties. Um, if you fail to exercise your empathetic muscle with the people that aren't directly engaging you in combat, you're going to stop seeing them as human. And when you stop seeing them as human, you're going to behave to them differently and generally more aggressively or less compassionately. And eventually that's going to come back down the pipe. That kind of discipline is just as critical. Yeah, and I think I think that the army is like a is like an aspirational organization, right? And like the activities that we that we conduct in the military are aspirational activities. I think that like the institution doesn't work because it, it, it drives a schism. It, it, it drives like a wedge between reality and the aspirations of the organization. Because like there's not. There's not like an army, like the army isn't an address somewhere that you go, albeit there are addresses, right? Um, where where we, you can find soldiers. Like the army is represented by John sometimes. You know, like there were, there were checkpoints that I was on in Iraq where John was the army in the sense that he was the authority structure. He was the one that provided guidance. He was the one that provided, you know, uh, standards for whatever mission that we were going to conduct. 
Sometimes the representative of the army was John Diem, but at the end of the day, the representative of the army was a man. It was just a man. And so, like, the the discipline to, to align the people in the institution with the aspirational goals or standards of the institution, there's security in that. You know what I mean? If, if everyone... Like we have an ethical framework within the military where there's, we call it like the army values. And ultimately, I think that other priorities, self-developed narratives became more appealing or easier uh, to stomach. And then the currency of the realm changed, you know what I mean? And then you get outcomes that you can't predict, you can't expect. And it's important for leaders specifically to maintain that that mooring to the uh, to the institutions like aspirational nature, because if they die, you know what I mean. Like, and my credibility or, or or the credibility of of that position was was held by a man, and not through the discipline or through the representation of the rank. Now, all of a sudden, the army doesn't work anymore. I mean. In large-scale war, I mean, like John said it in the video one time, it's like how many people in World War II and combat units deployed with a group of people and came back with that same group of people at the end? It's, right. you know, your sergeant gets killed, he gets replaced by another one, you know, one each sergeant type, you know what I mean? And and you still have to be effective. You still have to be able to fight. You still have to be able to, you know, conduct all those, those skill level one soldier tasks that you need to be able to conduct in order to be able to win wars. Um, that's discipline, you know what I mean? It's not you know, it's not anything else. Um, and it's it's extremely important to, to any, inst- I mean, the army in particular, but it's important to, to any organization that's trying to achieve complex strategic level goals, I would say. Yes. If I may, like on the aspirational side, like the army is essentially a running narrative, a multi-level narrative where it has aspirational, strategic and moral goals your obligation to adhere as closely as is physically and morally possible with those goals is discipline. What we see in like the incidents that happen in Yusufia are, are where the where the the narrative diverges, where somebody else's or a small group or a tiny cultural cell within the the institution has a different narrative. Like, don't listen to the army narrative because it doesn't align with the reality that we're experiencing. Let's align ourselves with this reality that more aligns with our interests. So it's very interesting to think about this concept of discipline and apply it to this continuing narrative of the army. Um, I'm really interested as well to talk about combat stress. A significant number of war veterans returning from service have problems readjusting to life after combat, you know, high levels of unemployment, addiction, mental health problems. For the both of you, how how did you deal with combat stress, uh, both during your deployment and when you returned home? It's difficult because I think for a lot of civilians, like violence as a concept is an alien. You know what I mean? Like we were entertained by violent movies. You know what I mean? We're even you know, even some of the actions that we take in the military, I, I, I don't mean to say like John and I, I mean to say like usually usually special forces are, or, and, and more specifically Navy SEALs, but they love to make movies. And, and um, you know, people see these things and they, you know, elicit an emotional response, but it's nothing too crazy. But, but I'll tell you, 
participating in real violence, not like, I mean, it, people keep fidgeting with that word. People keep messing with what that word means. And, you know, it's something that worries me because violence on that scale uh, or to that degree is unnatural to most people. And what I mean by that is, is like one of the common occurrences that would happen with new soldiers when you get to Iraq. I remember one of the first times we got engaged in a platoon-sized element. Like I had already been in a, a, a number of gunfights uh, with my squad, but it hadn't. We hadn't been there for long enough for everyone to 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 have been exposed to combat. And one of the things that happens, and, and I've talked to people across the army, and this is this is something that happens all the time where a soldier who's trained, right? So that's one step, you know, I mean, there's been a significant investment into turning that person into a soldier, like a civilian, but they'll be, they'll be getting shot at and their first instinct is to turn around. They, they, they'll, they'll say, they'll be like, hey, Sergeant, you know, it's like, well, I mean, not, not like that. Obviously there's probably yelling involved, but it'll be like, I'm being shot at. What should I do? Like, or, or, or can I shoot back? You know what I mean? And, and the answer is obviously yes. You know what I mean? But it is so alien for, for people in this era of society to engage in violence on that level that, that they need permission. You know what I mean? From, from an authority who is, is, is like literally, like John and I were the same age, but he was a sergeant, right? Like there's no, you know, like, 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 so John, yeah, John would be the person who could tell me to, he would, he could give me permission to shoot back, right? May I just ask how old you both were at I was time? 20, 22 when I started. Yeah. So, and you're talking about very, you know, very young men, you know what I mean? And, and it is unnatural for people to engage in this type of violence. And, and there is no training, in my opinion, that can prepare you for the real thing to that degree without having it affect who you are as a person. And, you know, people have a memed kind of understanding of what post-traumatic stress is. I, I mean, I think that Hollywood has done a, an unbelievable disservice. I agree. To, to veterans in this regard. Um, but when you participate in a system like that, or, or when you participate in war, it is so radically different than any other experience. Like, like you're not worried about the clothes that you wear. You're not worried. I didn't think about my car insurance. I didn't think about, you know, I mean, literally all of the stress that you feel on a day-to-day -day basis here as a member, like, cause I've, I've been on both sides, right? Like I, I work a normal job in a normal office somewhere. You know what I mean? I worry about all the same things that you do. And, and the reality of the circumstances, like those things like can ruin my day. You know what I mean? Like they, they can, they can absolutely ruin ruin your day but over there you're not worried about any of those things you're worried about like i didn't eat for 72 hours one time or sleep people are trying to kill me and those experiences are 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 kind of like you know really outside the realm of the norm you know what i mean uh for for your average everyday american and so when you when you take somebody from that environment and you subject them to prolonged combat and then you you throw them back in, especially on the the enlisted side, where they don't they don't have the networks that you get in college, you know what I mean, and the LinkedIn profiles or whatever. And you take them and you throw them back into the civilian world, and you know they're they're under. I go to you know you go to a bar and you'll see you know a four foot eleven you know ninety five pound female 
throw a drink in the face of a six foot four, 260 pound man with no hesitation. You know what I mean? Because she believes that she's in a world where there's no reality where she gets picked up and tossed through a plate glass window. You know what I mean? And when you've participated in a world where, you know, you those things aren't true and you realize there's no safety bubbles stopping anybody from killing each other, it's really hard to reconcile and compartmentalize everything. And so, um, and that's to say nothing of, of reconciling loss or survivor's guilt. You know what I mean? Like why me versus this person, you know, reconciling religious beliefs that you may have had, you know what I mean? Or, or, or that you have and trying to find explanations for things that happened. Go, go ahead, John, I, I can hear you. <laughs> yeah, I got you. So just to redirect, just quickly off what he's saying is like, this experience that we have in the first world is as ephemeral as a dream. And what you're doing when you're saying that somebody has PTSD is that you are saying that they have deleterious effects in interacting with society based on their perception of danger in the world. Now, I want you to understand that the implication here is that you have a that you have a mistaken understanding of the world. I don't think that's the case. I think that people, a lot of people with PTSD have a more accurate understanding of the underlying reality of the world. The problem is that it's not reflected in the societal norms around us. So if we imagine there's a spectrum of violence that people can be exposed to. So in Southside Chicago, they have a different relationship with violence than somebody who lives in a small town, a small town with a strip mall in Ohio. Completely different. If you live in a world where violence is a real thing that you can that you can at, at for no reason encounter, then your your relationship with the world changes. It's very true. The problem is that the vast majority of Americans have no idea, and it seems completely crazy to them that somebody would consider the world more dangerous than they perceive it to be. And not in the hysterical way that some people, like, you know, the world's going to end in 10 years or there's going to be a civil war. Those are all very ephemeral. But, like, when I'm getting into my car, if I hear somebody walk up behind me real fast, the statistical likelihood that that's nothing is really high in America. Maybe it's somebody just chasing a shopping cart in the grocery lot. But it ain't zero. But it ain't zero. And I and and I know what not zero looks like. I have seen people get beaten to death. I've fished small children out of the Euphrates River. Like it's uh once you see that, you can't go back. John, it's really interesting you say that if I can just give a personal anecdote. I, I lived in Australia, moved to Brazil. Brazil, as I'm sure you're both aware, is an extremely violent country. There's a lot of gun crime. Violence is a reality. To give you an idea, every one of my family members in Brazil has either been robbed at gunpoint or has lost a family member to gun violence. My partner has lost five friends to date that have been assassinated from robberies gone wrong. When I moved to Brazil, I didn't I didn't understand the concept of violence because I was living in Australia. And over time, through exposure, I evolved this 
fear complex. And for about six months of my time in Brazil, like I couldn't even get into an Uber without without fearing for my life because of the different, harsher reality that I was living. So I do really resonate with what you're saying that when you live in the first world, it's very hard to understand the reality of violence that a lot of people live with, right? For sure. And, and that doesn't make you crazy. You know what I mean? It's, no. it's a, it, you know, like you're not wrong. You know what I mean? When you come back to a place that that doesn't have, you know, those, those uh, stimuli all the time, it doesn't mean that you're wrong about the world writ large or you're, you know, certain places in the world or, or whatever. I mean, most people just aren't used to being afraid either. That feels really unnatural, doesn't it? Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's something that you take for granted, I think. And it was jarring for me when, when I was over there. I wasn't used to, like, it's like, I remember being a kid and being scared of the dark. You know what I mean? I remembered, you know, being scared to be embarrassed. You know what I mean? At school and like a sports game or, you know, whatever. Like, like that, that was like the extent of the fear, you know, fear of disappointing my parents, fear of getting caught for, you know, juvenile delinquent stuff I was doing. You know what I mean? But never fear, never real fear for my safety. You know what I mean? And so when you get confronted with that, I mean, it's, and eventually, and I'm sure, you know, you got used to it, which is probably even more alarming. You know what I mean? It's like you developed a framework and then now you don't even think about it so much, but other people might think that the decisions that you make or how you behave in certain, certain circumstances is strange, but it's completely logical to you. You know what I mean? And completely logical for the situation that you might find yourself in, you know, in some places that you might go. So it's, uh, you know, the community is also extremely, extremely insular. So you have, you know, you have like a, a, a group that's narrating this experience, I think, terribly to uh, the vast majority of people. Like they're, they're providing a narrative for it. Like this is what it looks like. You know, this is like flashbacks and, you know, this is how, how these people behave. And we're all a bunch of broken, um, dysfunctional people and, and dangerous, you know. And then on the flip side, you, you also have uh, an environment where, you know, we're in, it's an extremely small component of our society in America participated in these conflicts. You know what I mean? Like John has spent longer in combat than most people have spent in college. I mean, and, and not just like, I mean, he did the invasion, the triangle of death. I think it was like Ramadi part three and then the heart of darkness in Afghanistan. I mean, like they were not casual deployments. You know, they were extremely kinetic deployments. And, you know, I mean, it's going to change the way that you that you look at things. And, and we're, you know, most people, because it's such a small group, like they don't have like a direct connection to that tribe, right? And so there's not really a, like John and I don't need to talk about it with each other. It's a mutual understanding. Yeah, like, because we've been there, right? But but I think that the average person doesn't, doesn't really uh, understand. And that makes it, I think that that makes it seem a lot more odd or a lot more jarring than it, than it might actually be, you know, but uh, that's my two cents. And John, your time in combat, how has it altered the way that you look at the world? I mean, it's made the world a lot more complex in some ways and a lot more limited. So like there are no villains really, like, I mean, you've got your Jeffrey Dahmer types who are essentially animals and human skin. They don't have, like, understandable motivations that we can empathize with. But other than that, it's just a bunch of people 
and their very close-knit relationship that they've developed over time operating in their best interest. And that is an extremely limiting horse blinder to put on yourself because it makes it impossible to imagine these like giant spanning narrative stories that I think a lot of people have about other people. So like I, I find things like the political makeup of the United States to be almost completely in, incomprehensible because like there's no such thing as like huge groups. There's just small subcultures of closely related or closely associated people with shared value systems that are operating in their best interest. The things that we tend to care about a lot in media and stuff just aren't more than 5% of our daily life. Like you wake up, you eat, you do your chores, you go to work, you come home, you maybe do something social, you go to bed, you wake up. Where where in your life is room for the vast majority of the storytelling that we tell ourselves other than to be consumed as fiction? And the world, like I just don't, have the energy to make a lot of commitments to people anymore, um, which seems isolating, I guess, from the outside. If you have a person with a lot of friends, a lot of connections, like you're bringing people out to dinner, you're driving people to the airport, and you talk to your family every day, it would seem weird to you to live my life where it's like the only people I care about are my immediate family and essentially my parents and Justin. That's it. Because combat has taught me that every relationship you have with someone comes with serious commitments and they're by their very nature impermanent and extremely painful to lose. Justin, I wanted to ask how your decision to become a whistleblower and speak the truth, how that has positively influenced your life. I, I would say that it, it's it's pretty much the opposite. <laughs> I would say, I, I uh, it's actually um, you know I one of the questions that I get asked every time I go to West Point at the end like um, when they're doing the Q and A is like you know would I do it again and and in the beginning you know, I would always answer, because I thought that what they were asking is like, knowing what I know now, would I go through the same thing again, you know, to achieve the same ends based on like, was it morally correct? You know what I mean? And, and I always, I, I always said, yeah, you know, like, I, of course I would, like, this is, if you put me in that position a hundred times out of a hundred, that's who I am. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I believe in. This is what I believe our job is like, and and it's important that we do it to maintain the integrity of the institution and the and the trust of the public. But what I really, what I came to understand the more years that I did it and after I watched the country kind of like evolve is that they were asking, should someone else do it? That's what they were really asking me. Like, like after reading that story about the people I served with and me and the Janabis, that what they were really asking is, should I do that if I'm in your shoes? And and then I had to change how I answered the question because, you know, morally, like, like, if you asked me, do I think that if there was another Justin Watt tomorrow, you know, and something like this happened, if something different would happen to them, you know what I mean? If they wouldn't be jumped, if they wouldn't be, you know, kind of like exiled from the military, if they wouldn't pay like, you know, the, the personal costs I, I, I paid and set me down a road that I think 
was a lot harder than it had to be. I don't think it would be any different for that next person. And I think that we see examples of this everywhere that it happens, every single time that it happens. And, and most of the time, like one of the interesting things about doing this podcast was I had a lot of Australians uh, reach out to me, which is really cool. I, I've got a lot of love for the Aussies, but I tried to understand why, because I've never, I've never written to anybody. You know what I mean? Like there's, there, there are so many people in the world that I admire, that I try to emulate. And I've never felt compelled to, to reach out. But there was, there was a decent amount of people that reached out to me. And one of the things that they all had in common was they all had a story of, of basically them trying to do this and it not working out or their dad trying to do it and it didn't work out. And they were so happy because they felt like, like they saw like a Reddit post or they, they heard you guys talk about this or talk about me in a, in a positive way. You know what I mean? And that, not, I mean, of course that means a lot to me, you know what I mean? But it, it means a lot to them. Uh, that meant something to them and they wanted to reach out and, and say like that they were glad. But for me, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's no, it's not like after that happened, like things were good. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't get to go to the, the reunions that the unit has. I was never invited to speak at Fort Campbell you know, my friends from the military are extremely limited, you know, John being, you know, my best friend. Um, you know, most people turn their back on me and even people that have come around since then that have changed their minds. It's like, I, you know, I don't really have any interest in, in developing a relationship with people that let me get, you know, assaulted, you know what I mean? When I got back. So, yeah. um, yeah, no, it wasn't a good thing. And I think, you know, that's an interesting question. It struck me as odd after I started re reconsidering that question, cause like, then it's like, I go to West Point and I know what these kids are asking me. And there's this duality between what kind of world do you want to live in? And that's what I would say to them. I would basically say like, you know, what, like, what do you want your service to mean? You know what I mean? Like, what are your obligations to other people, both in the service and on behalf of the service, like you need to consider these things and decide, you know, what matters. Um, and that, that irrespective of the consequences needs to guide, you know, your decision on, on what you would do in that situation. But I'm not gonna tell you it's gonna be okay. It's not, it's not gonna be okay. And until we decide as a society that we wanna live in a, like when you board an airplane, everyone wants to live in a world where if there was like a manufacturing defect that someone would say something, you know what I mean? Or if a government was spying on you, if they were illegally spying on you, then you would want to know, you know what I mean? But we are mm. all perfectly content to sit here and watch Edward Snowden, you know, rot uh, as political capital in, in the arms of our enemy. It is, uh, you know, I want to be honest with people about the consequences of doing stuff like this. I think it's unbelievably important and I think that you should... I think that everybody should think about their obligations that they have to other members of society. And I think that, you know, when you think about things, like if I see someone being assaulted, if I see somebody, you know, making decisions that could put other people in danger, you know, if, if I know someone killed, you know, killed, if someone killed your family and someone else knew about it, what would you want? Would you want them to say something? And if that's the case, you know what I mean? If that's the case, then, then maybe realign what you would do, because that takes a commitment on your part. You know what I mean? Like you have to recognize that 
and reformulate what your obligations are to other people. And I think if we did that, it would be better. I think everything would be better, right? But for whatever reason, I think it's also important to acknowledge that, that it's not that way, you know? And it is important to not glorify what happens when you speak the truth, right? To not think that, yeah. oh, your life is going to be amazing and there are consequences, serious consequences when you speak the truth a lot of the time. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to think about. I, I, I just believe in being honest. I mean, I, I can tell you that that's the world I want to live in, you know, where it's like if something happened to my family, you know, the Janabis have the same right to justice that my family uh, that I would want for my family. You know what I mean? And that's how I'm going to live my life irrespective of the commitments that other people show me. But I would, you know, I would ask people to think about those commitments. And, and I think that if we did that more and if we flexed our empathy muscle more, and that's the, really the reason why I did this podcast right now with John was, was because we wanted to talk about this in particular, which is, you know, like how the Janabi thing happened is not a mystery to us. You know what I mean? And, and a lack of empathy in our society and not considering what we think and our obligations, you know, lead us down roads that can have terrible outcomes. And I, I, I think that we would be a lot better if we all, if we all spent some time trying to be more empathetic and think about the things we owe to each other. I share that sentiment. Oh man, I got to tell you, if I was Justin's father and Justin asked me if he should do it, I would probably say no. And this is why, how many whistleblowers have you seen come forward and get buried? All. All, yeah. So you know for a fact that that is 100% gonna happen. Yeah. And so here's my question. Does society deserve our sons and daughters? Do they, as society demonstrated that they deserve that sacrifice? It is certainly super erogatory to do that. Like we should appreciate the beauty of that gesture every time it comes about. And when we forgive them or just let it go, like in the case of Edward Snow, not to get political, I don't want to do that. But like in the case of these people who come forward and tell us things that they think it's important that we know whether they're right or wrong, is society big enough that we can just let it go? Like how many, if I walked down the street and I was like, who wants to see Edward Snowden get strung up from the nearest lamppost? Almost no, people would be like, who? Who's that? Yeah. They don't care. So who cares? The people he, er, he ostensibly was supposed to be informing us about. We have given them power over him and we are completely uncaring as to the fate of that man, despite the fact that he did it for us. And I'm not trying to say he's a martyr. I'm not trying to like put any more importance on him or his particular case is just the easiest case to reach for. But there are other people who have used their moral judgment to come forward, got ruthlessly stomped into the ground by the very institutions that they were trying to assist us with. And then no accountability comes we burn the whistleblower in effigy and then pat ourselves in the back. Like, does society deserve a whistleblower? Well, if the whistleblower was your son or your daughter, would you advise them to take that step? Yeah, would you want to see them get buried? It's a, it's a really great thought. Why do you think people continue to be interested 
in the events that happened in Iraq at that time. Yeah, like, and I thought about this. Like, this is something like I've wrestled with for a long time because every year that goes by, I always think I'm like, this is the last time. This is the last time I'm ever going to talk about it. Like, I'm finally going to put it in a drawer, and it's just going to be, it's going to assume its place amongst the other, you know, pieces of my life, and I'm going to finally, you know, move on from it. And I've come to the conclusion that um, it has the components of a story. I think that, that that are both relevant to you know society, kind of like in a broader sense. And I, I also think that it's it's people are scared of it, you know, in the sense that like um, either narrative, you know, both 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 true or fiction. So like the the false being that that there are you know men who are really boogeymen running around. Um, like that's that's what evil is, and they're gonna. They're going to go and they, they they do things for these, you know, unintelligible kind of like Heath Ledger, Joker type ends like like Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, and that's not the way that it is. And I think that but, but I mean, I think that that's uniquely terrifying to people. It's like, what do those people look like? People are interested because it's like if I know what they look like, maybe I can avoid them. Maybe I'll be able to to recognize these situations, you know, when they arise. Um or you know, inversely, you know, with, with with the with the true statement, it's it's um, these people weren't villains; like they were somebody's son. You know what I mean? They were they were they joined for probably noble reasons. They went over there to do ostensibly a good thing, and then something there was something that happened in between the time that they got on you know on that plane and the time of the crimes that made a. Like when you think about the absurdity of it, you know what I mean? Like, like how many relationships, how many people do you know where someone could approach you with an idea that they had to, to commit multiple child murder, rape, you know what I mean? And, and have that be heard by a group of their peers. Like think about what, what had to, think about what, what had to be possible in order for that conversation to take place. Think of all the things that had to be true in order for that to happen. And, and I think that, that you should be terrified of whatever's in that missing gap. And like, so that's like what John and I have spent a lot of time at West Point thinking about, because that, that's what leaders of institutions want us, like they want to find out, like when they bring in a, a couple of people like, you know, like John and I on the enlisted side, um, like that's what they're trying to like drag out of us. It's like, how did this happen? You know what I mean? Like, is it is it just a mystery? Is it a a perfect mixture of horrible events? And it's and it's not that way. It was completely predictable. And and I think that you know, understanding to me, it's becoming more important. Like, to, like the reason why I did this, the, the points that I think John and I wanted to talk about in this podcast, where that like I'm seeing the same elements that allowed those people to become you know, the murderers and rapists that they became, like I'm starting to see that in broader society. Like there's like ingredients that have to be present in order to make those things possible within a given ecosystem. And they're, they're not a mystery, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think that it's important that, that, we, that we talk about them. So um, I'm gonna turn it over to John so he can, you know, kind of lay out some of the framework and, and you know, hopefully we can you know, riff a little bit and, and talk about why I think it's important. And he does as well. So ultimately, like what we saw over there was if you dehumanize people enough, you create a moral imperative, like a moral imperative to kill them, 
or harm them. And then you basically put enough stress on the people involved that it allows them to justify harming those civilians. They will do it. And what Justin and I have seen in society writ large is just this incredible appetite for the dehumanization of our fellow human beings, largely for ideological purposes and a complete overuse of hyperbole to try to spur people to do terrible things and to justify removing people from the moral community. And and what I would say by that is it's kind of like the victim blaming thing behind sexual assault. Like she deserved it because she was wearing revealing clothes. Like that is so much apathy towards another human being. That could have been your daughter. You know what I mean? But we're doing that all the time for all kinds of reasons. We are, we are slowly progressing on apathy and hyperbole to the point where it's going to become violent. And that's the secret sauce. The, the hyperbole and the dehumanization of people are necessary ingredients that we're seeing more and more. And then the spark that turns it just completely unfixable is violence. And violence at the wrong place in the wrong time. Because right now the disagreements we have are political, ideological, religious, what have you. But they're allowing us to dehumanize each other, to, to justify bad behavior towards one another. But so, go ahead. Really Jason. quickly, yeah, really quickly, just to get tactical, and like, because like the, these are these are kind of broad concepts. But like, when you're, when you're talking about dehumanization, I think that people think that it was like, hey, we were encouraged to use to use like you know like like language that that would uh, strip the humanity from the population of Iraq. You know what I mean? Like we went we went to Iraq under the auspices that there were good Iraqis. You know that it was our job to protect. There were bad Iraqis that were terrorists, you know what I mean? And then there were more or less going to be, you know, as there always are people in the middle, more or less ambivalent to everything that was happening. But it was our job to protect the good guys. You know, we were the good guys trying to protect other good guys to get the bad guys. That was the the narrative when we started. So the dehumanization occurs when things like, so we get a narrative, right, from our government, like, hey, this is what's happening in Iraq. This is why we need to go do this. You're the good guys. Here's the bad guys. This is what you have to go do. It's simple enough, right? But when you go over there and then you start to see things like, okay, I'm the good guys. And you start walking down these roads every day doing these IED sweeps for, for the explicit purpose of removing bombs from the road for these people's children and so that they could get to work safely. And they can't be bothered to even let you know if someone dug a hole and placed a, you know, a series of bombs in front of the house that you have to walk down. It's like, I don't know if you've ever dug a big hole before, but it's not like a quiet or, or quick endeavor. It is, you know what I mean? It is a very obvious, like if somebody was digging a hole in your front yard, you would know about it. You know what I mean? And, and so you would see, you're like, wait, wait, wait a second. I'm the good guy. You know what I mean? Like I'm supposed to be protecting this person. They, they just got so-and-so killed, you know, cause they didn't even report it while we were doing the IED sweep, now so-and-so got blown up. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't they do that? Like, I, there was one time I was on the, it was pre, pre-IED sweep, I was on the roof of Checkpoint One, and I saw an Iraqi man, a middle-aged man, walking down the road. And behind him, about 200 meters, was a group of six-year-old school children that were walking to school, probably like six, six or eight. And I was looking with my binos before we took off, you know, to do the route clearance where our route clearance started. And I was looking at, you know, from an elevated position on the roof of the building, 
down where we were going to have to walk. And I, and I saw a bomb that was on the side of the road next to this, you know, or where the, next to where this man was going to be walking as he was walking towards me. And so I started yelling, you know what I mean? Trying to get him to get away from this bomb. And, um, you know, just frantically yelling, but it was too far. I, you know, I, I couldn't make enough noise. I debated firing a warning shot, you know what I mean? But then I was like, I'm going to scare him. You know what I mean? It, what can I do? So I'm, I'm watching, I can do nothing but watch. And I watch him walk up to this bomb. He sees it now. I'm watching him through the binoculars find this bomb. And he sees it and he looks behind him and he sees the kids and he walks to the other side of the road and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't stop to warn the children. He doesn't, you know, try to signal me, you know what I mean? Or, or anyone else at the checkpoint. He walks to the other side of the road and he just keeps walking like nothing ever happened. And like when you see something like that, so I had a narrative. Now my, my lived experience is developing a different hypothesis, right? So without empathy, okay, without empathy, I would say that man is subhuman. You know what I mean? He doesn't share any of the values that I do, like any of the obligations that I would share towards like my own people's children. You know what I mean? Like towards each other, like he, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my life, what I'm willing to do for him every day to keep him safe. You know, and I'm talking about through the lens I was looking at things through at the time. Mm -hmm. If you don't expose your own thoughts to like an additional level of scrutiny, which is to say, what are the reasons why this man would do that? Well, what if he did report the bomb and then all of a sudden we thought that he put it there? You know what I mean? Like, what if someone's watching the bomb? It stands to reason that if there's a bomb in the road, someone is watching it. So if he warns us that there's a bomb in the road, is he going to be killed? For, for disrupting an attempt on our lives. You know what I mean? Like if you put in just a little bit more effort to understanding the positions that other people have for the behavior or the beliefs that they have or the actions that they take, you know what I mean? More often than not, there's a good reason. Like people generally, in my experience, you know what I mean? Do things for logical reasons more often than not. And so like if you expose yourself to this type of scrutiny, you become immune to another narrative that develops. So, because the, the, original narrative, the, the original narrative wouldn't do anymore. Like everyone was observing these things happening all the time. The people that, that believed in that narrative paid dearly for it, like Nelson and Kasika, who were trying to be good, you know, develop relationships, you know, show trust to the local populace. They both got killed literally over a demonstration of trust. And so, you know, it, it became the situation where the absence of a counter narrative, the absence of utilizing that that empathy muscle, instilled a stronger you know narrative that fit. It was like a hypothesis. Okay, the original narrative was wrong, that there were good people here. You know what I mean? That are worthy of of our protection and that that we should sacrifice ourselves for. And it became like these people have nothing in common with us. They're they're subhuman. Like they're like their existence is just nothing but a danger to me. And that's the thing, if left unchecked, and the violence that John talked about, because like John likes to say, you know, after, after people die, then it's not even about the thing anymore. It's a little bit about the blood, you know? Like, it's, it's, not, it's not about the issue that you had or the disagreement you had. Now it's like, my brother's dead. You know what I mean? Now I don't have the capacity to see this rationally anymore. You know what I mean? And so now, you know, now there's just another combatant in the mix, right? So... Uh, John, I'll let you pick up. Gotcha. It just, so a lot of these disagreements that we have, so 
These people were pulling each other out of cars and asking questions about difference between Sunni and Shia Islam. And based on your answers, they'd pull you and your whole family out of the car and shoot you. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam, but for us outsiders, it's it would be extremely difficult to make a distinction in the philosophy between the two, which are, are largely identical. Um, that's... and probably doesn't really affect their daily lives all that much. This is a completely abstract difference of opinion that they're turning into a very real use of violence that's killing people with pre- pre-existing relationships. We all have existing relationships. If you exert violence on somebody, the gamble there is that the person that has close relationships with the victim isn't going to make it about the blood. And the more violence there is, the more likely you're going to find that guy. How many people in Southside Chicago get shot in follow-up shootings as a result of an initial act of violence? And that's ultimately what worries me and Justin, is that we are seeing violence propagated for a number of ideological reasons, and people are dying and being injured and their lives ruined. It's only a matter of time before you fi- before you kill or injure the wrong guy. I mean, examples are George Floyd. Like, these people caused a tremendous... When they died, it caused a tremendous amount of violence. And a lot of them weren't even related to him. Every time we allow our ideology to cause an injury or a death or burn it on a business, we are betting a lot that there's not a person who's going to react, respond to it with yet more violence. And that's what I mean by it's a little bit about the blood. Violence is one of those things you can't soak up with a soak up with a sponge and put back in the bucket. It once it's spilled, it's spilled until it plays out. And I think, as we talked about before, our first world environment means that the vast majority of people don't understand violence outside of a fantasy or fictional context. The reality is in this environment, if you allow the social contract to fail or erode to the point where violence is like something that you could really come into contact with every day, it's going to fundamentally change your life for the worst. There is not a future where we get to go to Starbucks in a world where the whole United States is angry about some ultimately like completely minuscule ideological fracture. Like the violence has very real implications overwhelming and abundant implications the ideological disagreement ultimately like interfaces with maybe five percent of your life and but americans particularly are refusing absolutely refusing to to turn down the hyperbole to there are no adults in the room who are telling people to calm down everything it's just always a massive massive mess of hyperbole and and catastrophism and it is it is killing people and it's only a matter of time before we kick over another paint can full of violence that's what me and Justin worry about I would like for people you know if there's a lesson to be learned from the Janabis it's that like with people that we live with you know what I mean it's like I don't care if you're right or on the left the things that we disagree about that we've been disagreeing about for a long time like there are axiological positions that people hold and, and, and there are, you know, like these are complicated things. And, and I'm not saying that, that it can't be, you know, that, that, that we can't disagree or that we can't be hurt or, or, or any of that, but, but it is really important to use the empathy muscle 
because like more often than not, you can find, if you dig deep enough, a good argument for why somebody has a position that they have. And, and it can prevent, like that empathy can prevent, you know, things from turning into something that can't be fixed. Because like, I'm watching these things, like one of the things that we're struggling here with is like the credibility of our institutions. If it's the elections or the FBI or the CDC or what, like, these are things that you cannot, when you tear them down or, or like you call your political opponent, like an existential threat to Western civilization, you know what I mean? Like if you, if you make believe that 50% of your neighbors are communists or Nazis and, and you're, and you're using tools of rhetoric or philosophical constructs to, to justify preemptive or, or self-defense violence. Cause you're, you're a victim of some, some kind of violence. So it justifies you to take violence or take action with violence. Like if you, if you do these things in this way, like there are consequences and I'm not, I'm not advocating for limiting speech. And I want to be clear about that. But what I am trying to do is I am trying to say that like the Janabis have something to teach us. And if you want to know how a group of like normal people ultimately ended up participating in, in horrific, hateful violence that some people paid a, 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 an unbelievable, irreconcilable price for, it is, it is as a, a result of the things that we are doing to each other right now. You know what I mean? Because none of those people were willing to look at the situation and give the benefit of the doubt to the guy who crossed the road when he saw the bomb. You know what I mean? Like, like that, is, that is the thing that I would ask that we do for each other and expose our own ideology and what we think and our instincts and what we listen to, to a degree of scrutiny, show each other a degree of empathy that could hopefully mitigate you know, what's been happening. Cause it's been three years, it has been three years of not, I mean, I don't know about uh, how it was in Brazil. Um, I don't know how long you've been there, but, but, but certainly I can imagine, like I know Australia had an unbelievably long lockdown period. You know what I mean? I know that there was like a lot of, a lot of stress that people go through when they're in that environment. You know what I mean? Like a lot of fear about, you know, surviving it, people getting sick, hurting each other, um, you know, by spreading a disease. And then it's like the war in Ukraine kicked off and the U.S. election. You know, it's like there's all sorts of stuff that happened. And I, I feel like it has been nonstop shrieking for three years. And I don't feel like the volume's going down. And I don't feel like the way I think that our politicians talk to each other or about each other or about each other's constituents is doing anything to diffuse or create, you know, the situation or create unity or highlight any of the bonds that we absolutely share with each other. And it's like, this is... If there's one lesson to learn from the Janabis is that there is a recipe for that outcome. You know what I mean? And we are absolutely participating in it. When the answer is everyone else is stupid and I'm just really smart or like all the answers are coincidentally the things that I feel good, that make me look good or that I feel good about. You know what I mean? Like you should, that should be an instantaneous trigger for you to start to be skeptical and start to try and use that empathy muscle and reject uh, the things uh, and the ridiculous behavior that we're seeing right now from politicians, you know, from leaders and, and from, from talking heads in the media. These, these are things that we shouldn't reward and we need to become more sophisticated consumers of information because there are very real consequences to going down this road that we appear to have a unbelievable fascination with going down. So I hope that that makes sense. John, do you have anything? 
my last point would be like in furtherance of your own, they killed hundreds. The Sunni Shia civil war killed hundreds of thousands of people. There are still Sunnis and there are still Shiites and they're still fighting about the same thing. It's now a little bit about the blood. And that's the thing that I would leave with anybody is if you think violence is going to solve any of these deep-seated philosophical or ideological issues, I promise you that it won't. It will just make life for everybody involved infinitely worse. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Unfiltered. If you'd like to know more about the Janabi family case, the story is covered in detail on episode 78 of the True Crime Podcast, Case File.